everyone. We hope you've had a good week. Thank you for joining us tonight. This evening's webinar is on clarifying the PPE guidance. Joining us on the panel is Fadi Barak, who is an academic lead with a master's in dental implantology with UCLan. He is duly qualified in medicine and dentistry and has vast experience in oral and maxillofacial surgery in hospital and primary care and heads up the VSS Academy. Will Murphy, who has special interest in implant and cosmetic dentistry, having been placing dental implants since 1999. Will plays an active role in postgraduate education and is currently tutoring and lecturing on the implant diploma in London and is held a position of clinical assistant in oral surgery at the QE Hospital. Carl Horton, who has an MSc in both implantology, Perio, is an implant coordinator, course leader and mentor for VSS and is an honorary lecturer at UCLan. Faye Griffiths, who is an experienced hygienist, a tutor for the National Examining Board for Dental Nursing and Poseidon Examiner. And we have Shelley Coley, who is a competent, qualified head dental nurse with further qualifications in dental radiography and impression taking. With a keen interest in infection control, she has also completed an infection prevention and control lead course, gaining a distinction. We hope you find this evening interesting and helpful. Please feel free to send through any questions. We will do our best to answer them. As you can see, we are in good hands. And on that note, I'd like to pass you over to Carl Horton. Thanks, Kate, and uh, hello. Welcome to this evening's uh, webinar. Um, I want to thank the panel for um, joining me this evening, and I want to thank you all for also joining. Uh, I hope you, you get something out of this. Um, I do probably apologize beforehand because probably like a lot of you, I, I get emotional about some of the things that have been sort of going on and happening. What I'm going to do is uh, hopefully just try and clarify some of the questions that I've been asked. And one of the reasons that we came up with this webinar is that a, a lot of people were asking lots of questions. And uh, like yourselves, I, I felt a little bit lost. Um, I have an, a nature for probably irritating my wife um, and asking lots of questions. I like doing lots of research. I like uh, looking up papers um, and I'm doing some work with Fadi on a, on a research group, uh, which I'm thoroughly enjoying. But I, I like to find out all sorts of things. I like to have evidence based decisions. And in lockdown, it's gave me a, a great opportunity to do lots and lots of reading. Um, I've become a particularly um, a very experienced consultant in helping my wife. Uh, pick the right paint for the kitchen and the front room but I actually think she was just asking my view because she just felt better by just saying you know what do you think about that unfortunately the answer was often uh, but we have a probably like most of you a very tidy garden and a fully decorated house and I'm being heckled by my son who's uh, playing <laughs> games on his mobile phone so he's, he's not being throttled he just gets a little bit excited so I do <laughs> apologize for that anyway Without uh, much more delay, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to start this little presentation, which hopefully you'll find useful. So what we're going to talk about is maths, 
respirators and aerosols to start with. And then we've had some questions come in, so we're going to discuss those a little bit. So what's the difference between masks and respirators? And, and this was the thing that sort of intrigued me a little bit. I was, I was curious as to why we were being informed that respirators were the way to go. And I wanted to know what the difference was between uh, a mask. Well, obviously, I knew the difference between a mask and a respirator. But I wanted to understand what the evidence was behind it. So I, I looked into it uh, within detail. I knew that really masks were, were there to protect the, the wearer um, when we were doing the work. So sorry, protect the patients from the wearer when we're doing the work. So if we decide that we're going to have a sneezing fit, that it's not going to be in the patient's face. So I, I understood that. I didn't understand too much about respirators apart from when I'd done a bit of DIY sending stairs and things like that, but it gave me some protection uh, against dust. So the, the primary difference is that the masks will protect the patients from the wearer and respirators have uh, a two-way protection unless they're valved. So some of the respirators that we can buy have this valve. And the problem with the valve is when you breathe out, you're breathing your air towards the patient. And one of the key things I'll put two little eyes there is what they what they don't do is they don't protect your eyes and that could be important. So I've got this little table which uh, I've modified um, from little bits and we've got single use masks, uh, which uh, it's not so much sought after these days, but there's a little toilet roll there to show what use they actually are. And we have this thing called BFE, which is uh, bacterial filtration and we've got this sort of value at three microns and I'll explain that a little bit more but we can see the percentage there and then in, in the UK for what we call particle filtration there are no requirements for these masks so these are your basic masks what we're sort of gearing towards in the surgery uh, as dentists is the second type of mask or the surgical mask and you'll see there's a reference number there for the, the European standards and you should see that on the box of your masks and we've got sort of really three types with the type R. So the first two types are not sort of that effective, but they're, they're okay. I mean, we're looking at sort of what we call 95, 98%. And then we go to a type 2R, which you're, you're hearing quite a lot about, about the surgical masks. And the type 2R mask, it's sort of filters at three microns at a 98% efficiency. And then the particle filtration there is at 98% at 0.1 microns. And what I, why I've put that one in with a, with a little asterisk is that for the UK, there actually isn't any regulation for particle filtrations on these masks. But in the USA, there is. So I've included it because in the USA, you've got level one, level two and level three masks. So if you are buying masks and you see level one, level two, level three, you can relate it back to type one, type two and type two R. And then we come down to the respirators and then there's a different European regulation for that one, the 149.2001. And then you've got the USA ones and, and the Chinese ones. And what I've done as well is I've just helped a little bit by I've color coded them and I've color coded them into sort of what stage we're at uh, according to the government's Nando's uh, effect. So as you can see there, we've got the FFP ones which no one's really talking about. We don't really relate to those much. And then there's lots of talk about the FFP2s and the FFP3s. There's also talk about the N95s, and there's been some interesting debate about the KN95s today, and I'll, I'll go into that in a few moments. 
But the FP2s and the FP3s are the, the two types of respirators that are sort of being talked about, with the FB, FP3s being sort of like your very much your gold standard, having a filtration effect there at uh, 99% or, or greater than, and your FP2s being at 94%. So you can see there's a slight difference in the, the filtration between those two. And then the, the N95s, which are the uh, USA version, and the KN95s, which are the Chinese version, slightly different in the way that they are comprised. But we're looking at about uh, an equivalent to greater than a 95% filtration. Now, the question that was sort of being banded around was that are the KN95s acceptable? And the answer simply is yes, uh, they are acceptable, but you've just got to be a little bit careful about where you're sourcing them from. Call. So there are just slightly more counterfeit, apparently, KN95s around. Um, but we'll go through this presentation and you can ask yourself a question whether that really matters or not. But I'll leave Call. that. Yeah. Sorry, um, they can't see the chart. I have um, explained that we are recording it and we will make it available for them to view. They can see all the speakers, but not the chart. Okay. Can they see me as a speaker? I believe so. Only faces, yeah. Right, yeah. You can't see you can't see what uh, what I'm actually showing as a presentation then. No, only partly. Okay. If you make the window bigger. Right, yeah. So what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna stop sharing for a moment. So I'll carry on chatting for a little while. <laughs> and uh, what we can do is we can, we can, it's a sh real shame because I must admit this presentation is fantastic. Yeah. It, it is the business. Yeah. What I might do guys is if I'm, if I'm just gonna, I'm, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna get you to leave and then I'll bring you guys back in and hopefully then, and I'll, I'll leave Kate, I'll leave you as the moderator in and then okay. I'll just get you guys to come back in again. I'll re-invite you if that's okay. And then we'll see whether that just makes it a little a little better. So there we go. How's that? Uh, how's that looking? Can you get any feedback yeah. on that? Yeah, um, it will come through in just a moment. Okay. It's water, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, that's better. Yeah, it's yeah. all on. Yeah. Okay. Now I've got uh, quality control downstairs as well. So excuse me one moment. Any better? Excellent. So this is the table that I was talking about. Again, I'll share this presentation, show you'll be able to see that. I'm glad you can all see it because that's uh, that's that took me all of 10 minutes. And then we've got a little bit here about the, uh, the way that the masks are actually made. And there's this thing called uh, mount blown. So what they do is they get a polymer and they heat the polymer up and then they uh, sort of blow it through over these rollers and we get this sort of fabric, this, this polymer fabric. And this is the way that these, these masks, these surgical masks are able to, to filter the particles. I'm going to come back again to, towards the respirators 
and the difference in the in the the respirators that we're getting so we're getting the n95s and we're getting the fp2s or the p2s and that they're pretty much equivalent to each other with the the n95s probably being slightly better than the fp2s and i think that people are getting very worried about the, the difference in in these and they're getting all a little bit hung up and i'm getting asked lots of questions well which one is it n95 ffp2 and when i read the the hsc guidance and the the public health guidance um they've kind of pretty much said yeah you know just go for the n95 or the ffp2 whatever is available and it's almost like a, a hang-up that we don't really need to worry about you know it's it's a respirator as long as you're getting the respirator at the ffp2 ffp3 level or the n95 or the kn95 then you're fine i mean you can supersede that if you really want to spend the money on the n99s or the the um there are other types of respirators that i don't go into on this presentation so why is sort of 0.3 microns uh sort of banded about as a, a bit of a figure that we're looking at for our particle sort of filtration and it's because when we talk about it it's the the most penetrating particle size we've got so when they when they do the research what they have a look at is they look at the particles that are, that are hitting these these filters and they're seeing sort of how far these sort of particles can penetrate these filters and anything that's sort of above or larger than 0.3 microns sort of sticks are on the air so it doesn't get very far it doesn't sort of manage to penetrate the mask very well anything that's below that so that's that's smaller than 0.3 microns well it behaves a little differently it what it does is it's sort of affected by sort of a random sort of Brownian motion, if you like. So as the particle doesn't really move straight through the air, it has this random movement. And actually what the masks are, are really good at doing is they're good at filtering these sort of smaller particles. So what they talk about is this 0.3 micron as being the most penetrating particle size. So it's the particle size that can sort of pass through the mask at the, the most distance, so penetrate it the most. And when we look at the sort of the coronavirus, certainly SARS-CoV-2, it's, it's a pretty decent sized virus. So we're looking at sort of 60 to 140 nanometers. And when we compare that to, to MERS, you can see that they all sort of, all the COVID viruses, they all sort of have a, a similar sort of size. They're all pretty big. And that, that sort of little image just sort of shows it there. So respirators, what are we looking for in a respirator? Are we looking for something that's got sort of fluid resistance? There are some that aren't fluid resistant, but because we're dealing with patients, if we're going to bother to invest in a respirator, then we're going to want some fluid resistance because we do sort of talk about aerosols and I'll talk about that in a little bit. You've got to decide whether you're going to go for valved or non-valved. The benefit of having it valved is it's probably going to be a little easier and a little bit more comfortable breathing wise. So as you're exhaling that that air that you're exhaling it, it's not encompassed in a mask you don't have to push it out so much so it's just probably going to feel a bit more comfortable and, and the advice for those that's being sort of banded around is that you put a mask a surgical mask over the over the top of the valve sort of going back to not wearing the surgical mask is going to filter that air and stop that air being blown directly into the patient do they or do they not need fit testing they need fit testing if you're going to invest in these masks they will leak if you haven't got a fit test and there's different leakages depending on the size of the mask. And that, that really hasn't been researched in a great deal. But the whole point of investing in the respirator is that you're trying to get the optimum protection that you can from being infected and filtering out these particles. So if you don't get it fit tested, well, then you, you lose some of the efficacy uh, of the mask. 
So it, it kind of doesn't make sense that you'd invest in a mask and then not get it fit tested and then understand whether it's going to fit or not. And one of the problems out with them is, is comfort. So they're not as comfortable as wearing a surgical mask over time. A lot of people are getting complaints. They're, they're not feeling comfortable with these. And what you can do is you can sort of reflect on that and try the masks. So there are certain masks that fit people and a certain masks that don't fit people. But they're certainly different to wearing a, a surgical mask. So we're going to look a little bit about the evidence. I'm going to talk about that uh, a little bit now. Um, and it is a little bit interesting. I was kind of quite curious as to, to whether or not they actually did offer us sort of any more protection than actual surgical masks. So do, do respirators actually work better for us than a surgical mask? And the reason that I kind of I thought about this is really early on, I, I just couldn't understand if we were at risk that much, why we weren't seeing more of healthcare workers that are doing dentistry getting ill. And I, I just I just couldn't figure it out. And I thought, well, maybe it's because we haven't seen as many patients with the disease. Um, you know, maybe these are the issues. And I, I didn't know. So I thought, well, you know, I'm you know, going to have a look. I'm going to find out the evidence. I'm going to delve into this and I'm going to research it, have a little look at it. And it's, it's weak in terms of whether there is any benefit from a respirator over a mask. And in fact, it's quite interesting some of the evidence that's out there. There are, there are papers, they're not great, they're okay though, that actually compare the N95 masks to surgical masks. And there are human studies on this. So it's not just that they've put it on a machine and tested it on the machine because those ones actually don't really show us what's happening in real life. What you really want is somebody that wears the mask and we look at the infection rates between the two types. And it just so happened there are, there are various studies that were able to do that ethically. Um, it's not really ethical to turn around to us and say, right, you lot wear a surgical mask and you lot wear a respirator and we'll see which one of you gets ill first. So these studies were done just because of the availability of the, the masks and the respirators. And what they actually found that the, the respirators were a little bit better, but not a lot. So there was only a, a, a tiny bit more sort of protection from wearing a, a respirator over a surgical mask for these healthcare workers. That, granted, they were looking at influenza, and that is obviously a little bit different. I'm not taking away the fact that we're dealing with something that's very different, but it's very similar in terms of how it potentially could infect us in some ways, in some ways. Don't take me completely on that. And they also had a look at um, surgical masks against non-surgical masks. Um, so there were people that didn't have a surgical mask and there were people that did have a surgical mask and they saw that there was a huge benefit for the people that were wearing a surgical mask. So the evidence is, uh, is, is really quite interesting in my opinion anyway. I'm, I'm, I like this sort of stuff and I'm going to move on now to, to talk about aerosols. And yesterday I got, I got angry again and I've been getting angry and I, I do feel sorry for um, my family and my wife. Um, and probably the other people that I'm talking to in these meetings sometimes when I'm having these discussions, because I, I, I get a little bit, probably a little bit fed up with being spouted at information that doesn't sort of have evidence and, and sort of making us look like we're dangerous places to work in and, and making us scared of some of these things that we're dealing with. And it, and it, it, it does get me quite angry. So this was something that uh, I put up last night and in, in that annoyance 
that uh, I took from the um, guide, the SOP that we were given for the um, office of the chief dental officer. So if you are watching, you did put it up, you've taken it down, but it doesn't matter, I got it. And it said, this was what it was worded like, AGPs can produce airborne particles less than five micrometers in size, which can remain suspended in the air, travel over a distance and cause infection if inhaled. And that that little bit there, cause infection if inhaled, okay, that wetted me up a little bit. Therefore, AGPs create the potential of airborne transmission of infections that may otherwise only be transmittable by the droplet route. And for some reason, that just, just weighed me up. I didn't like the wording of it. I'd already looked at other papers and, and sort of other comments that have been made. So we got one from Europe, and, and you know, I remembered what I'd read on that one. So therefore, that, therefore the event of a widespread community transmission leading to shortages of PPE a rational approach would necessitate prioritizing FP2 and FP3 respirators for care activities involving a higher perceived risk of transmission. Now, for some reason, that sentence just sits a little nicer with me. It's almost like they actually understand that it's a perceived risk and that it's not a definite risk. And I, I, I like that because it is a perceived risk and, and I get why it's a perceived risk. I understand why we might think about that. And that's a, it's a logical thought to have. You know, we're, we're, we're dealing with, and I'm going to go into the, what we're dealing with a little bit more, but we're dealing with aerosols and we kind of, you know, from everything that we're understanding that they might actually be a problem. They, they could be infective. So I get that. But there's not, you know, the, the evidence is sort of sketchy, if I'm honest. So when we look at aerosols, we've got to kind of understand that we're dealing with aerosols all the time. Um, and people sort of emit aerosols when they're breathing and that's hence why we've been given these social distancing rules and i've got to speed up because <laughs> everybody else is uh, going to be talking um i hope and uh, sort of emitting on it uh, in contributing to this so I, I know that i ramble on sometimes and i do apologize for that um so kate just please tell me to to keep going and, and not keep to ramble. going yeah okay um and it depends uh, much, uh, very much on the individual. Um, so the evidence, when we look at this, it sort of, sort of their, their breathing, their speaking, their coughing, their sneezing, it can depend on the amount that these aerosols travel the distance, the energy behind these aerosols. We've got this sort of tidal volume. So when you're sitting there relaxed, you're breathing out and you're creating an aerosol when you do that. When I'm talking to you now, there's probably little droplets on my laptop, I'm afraid to say. So I'm creating an aerosol as I'm chatting away. My mouth's drying up, so probably not quite as much as normal. But the louder I get, then the more aerosol that's going to be produced. And the quieter I get, then maybe a little bit less. People are different in how much they can produce. So they're all individuals. So some people produce a, a little bit of aerosol and other people can produce quite a lot of aerosol. And I, and I have to uh, thank Dominic O'Hooley a little bit as well, because I've been reading some of the stuff that he's posted on on Facebook and um, some of the webinars that he's done. And I have to say thank you to him because he's kind of given me the, uh, the sort of some of the information. He's helped me not have to trial through the papers. I think he's done it himself a little bit. So he, he did a lot of the research on this himself. And I, I've got to take my hat off to him and give him a little nod. Um, and we, you know, are these always infective? And are they infective for what we're dealing with in this this pandemic these aerosols we're being told to socially distance two meters and i did some research on that as well because i was really interested in the the aerosols and wh where we got that and i wasn't really looking at where we got the two meter rule from but i was i was reading a lot about the research about aerosols early on 
And uh, I qualified at Birmingham and some of that research was done at Birmingham by Basu um, and a couple of other people that I was fortunate enough to, to have teach me really quite back in the sort of the 70s, 60s. And then there was uh, Marsh and Martin as well that also looked into aerosols, especially when it came into the dental field. And, and some of that research is, is quite good. And maybe I should clarify a little bit that my, my background before I was a dentist comes from a, a microbiological background. So what I what I did is I studied microbiology for, for two years. And, and it was that long ago that sometimes I forget that. Um, but part of that was to also sort of design experiments for and, and to understand these things. So I've always had that analytical nature. And so when we're looking at that, we're looking at, you know, whether the whether these aerosols can be infective. So we certainly know that that measles is and that that can be a very infective. We know that TB is and we've been dealing with these aerosols fr from the time that we qualified, if not well before when we were students and We've got to ask ourselves, is SARS-CoV-2 primary spread in an aerosol? Um, and we need to sort of have a little look at that and have a little think about that. And when I looked for the evidence on this, um, I found various bits of research and all the research, it's new. It's new and I can understand that. It's, it's new and up and coming. But the one thing that, that came up again and again, were, there, was, there was no viable virus proved in aerosols. So they haven't managed to get any SARS-CoV-2 from aerosols, which is, is, I think, quite apt for what we're dealing with. But they can get it from droplets. So droplets, formites, and contacts. So formites when you're touching something, so cardboard, post, door handles, things like that. Contact when we're shaking hands, which obviously we're not allowed to do anymore when you're hugging somebody. And then droplets from the, the actual droplets themselves, so the big, the big sort of bits, if you like. And then we come on to, to dental aerosols. And I think the FGDP have been very good in the way that they've had a look at aerosols and the way that they've sort of explained it. I did like the way that they did that. I thought that was uh, very apt and I was impressed with that. So we're hearing this sort of aerosol generated procedure, but a lot of the time they're ignoring the fact that these patients are essentially aerosol producers with the breathing and the coughing and the sneezing. And they're focusing on what I think is possibly the wrong side, side, side of things. And so what is an aerosol generated procedure as we kind of understand it from a dental point of view? Well, it's when you're using the ultrasonic. So it's, it's when perio treatment was being provided and you're not using hand scalers. And we can talk about that a little bit if you really want to. So hand pieces. So when the hand pieces accessing the tooth and drilling the dentine and then the three in one, the, the triple air, when you're blowing the air in the water and you know what's what's the evidence that they're a danger where's this sort of where's this evidence come from that they're, they're actually a, a dangerous sort of thing to be dealing with and and there isn't any there isn't any there isn't any evidence that these things are, are dangerous and and that's probably what winds me up i can understand it i can understand why people feel like that but we need more evidence on this we need to find out whether they are actually dangerous or not so i think that's really important and and some of the evidence that i read uh, there were various papers that had a little look at this so one of the papers what they did is they got agar slides and they put them a different distance from the patient it was actually a live patient and they performed some um, ultrasonic work on the patient 
and then they measured the amount of bacteria in, in these agar slides uh, at certain distances away. But one thing they didn't do is they didn't use any high volume suction. So they actually got some growth on these agar plates. The control wasn't very good either. So it's a poor paper. And this is what I come back to. The papers are, are really either badly designed. I have to be careful not to swear. They're either really badly designed or they're not, they're not randomized control trials. It's almost like they're trying to prove a point. And I think when you're when you're when we're scientists, what we've got to do is we've got to make sure that we don't let our bias get in the way of what we're what we're looking at. We have to be unbiased in in what we look at and how we look at things. And that's very difficult sometimes to do. And and we can have an opinion on something, and sometimes we're swayed into the way that goes. And I've seen some of the comments and on Facebook, and I've seen that people are you know I, I try not to take too much notice of it, but I've seen people get into huge arguments and not have any evidence behind their arguments. It's just the way they feel. And that's okay. We're, we're all okay. It's all okay to feel like that. But when it comes to dealing with what we deal with, and, and this is an important subject, we need the evidence. And, you know, hopefully that's going to be sort of forthcoming. So we've talked about the aerosols that are coming out of the, the, the hand pieces and the ultrasonics. And the one thing that I'm also interested in is uh, from, from a point of view, I'm just rambling on a little bit now, sorry. Um, is you know what happens um, with different types of um, products that we put in the in the water lines obviously they've got to be safe for patients I, I I was curious as to whether that has any effect on patients I know that there are various things that go in the water lines lubrication and all that and is that going to be an issue but then we've got the complex aerosols this is the aerosols that uh, then being produced that go into the patient's mouth and then come back out again and this is the stuff that's that's scaring a lot of people I guess you know, it's mixed with saliva and blood. Is that an issue? Is saliva an issue for, for what we're dealing with? Is blood an issue for, for what we're dealing with? Or is it just the patient's breathing? Is that is that the main issue? I mean, this virus, it sort of sits here in the in the nose. It's uh, ACE2 okay, receptors on the virus. And we've got lots of these little ACE2 receptors in, in our nose. And we've also got them elsewhere in our body as well. But if it's sort of sitting here and, and the patient's breathing, uh, is that more of a concern for us than the saliva and the blood and the aerosols that have been produced? We've got splatter. So there's a little bit of research on the splatter that's coming out. We've got these droplet nuclei that are formed when, when we create these aerosols. These little droplets sort of, sort of float up and then evaporate a little bit and they sort of float around. And these are the things that, that people are a little bit concerned about and what they sort of relate to with fallow time and how long are we leaving it for these things to sort of settle down out the air. And one of the things that really helps with this a huge amount looking at this research is high volume aspiration. And there's a, a little image of pinch there from a guy called Wally Wren. And he's doing some research into this. There are other papers out there that they're just um, not quite finished yet. And there are, there are some ones that have been shown where they put uh, an image and you can see in the background, the aerosol sort of disappearing up the high volume suction. But this this research looks interesting, and I'm I'm sort of interested in the way this goes, and I think more research needs to be done on this. But the high volume aspiration alone really reduces the amount of aerosol that's coming out of that patient's mouth and coming into the atmosphere and hitting us and, and going around the surgery by a huge amount. I mean, we're looking at a difference between sort of 97 and 98 percent, which is which is massive. And what they've done here is they've just looked at different ways of doing it. So aerosol generating exposure, and this is what I like about the way that the, the FGDP, um, you know, I'm not paid by them, by the way, at all, um, have looked at things. And I, I just really like the way they looked at it. They looked at it in a, 
it's probably a very common sense way. And they're trying to lower the perceived risks as a whole. So when we talk about aerosol generated exposure, I, I, I do like that. I, I prefer that. So what have we what have we looked at and what are we kind of being given in the uh, SOPs? Well, one is to sort of triage our patients. You know, we're asking them questions uh, prior to coming in. You know, have you been to Italy? Um, have you had a temperature? Um, you know, it's 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 interesting measuring that temperature. I was um, unfortunate, fortunate enough to suffer with. Well, I'm going for a test on Tuesday to find out whether I had COVID or not. It certainly felt like it. I had all the symptoms, but one interesting symptom that I didn't get is I didn't get a rise in temperature. And I'm, you know, grateful that I'm still around. It wasn't a pleasant experience, but obviously I'm aware um, I've had friends um, that have got relatives that are no longer here. And, uh, you know, when my heart goes out to them, it's uh, it's very difficult. And, you know, I was in a, and I'm not going to go on about how it was for me too much, but there are times when you, you're coughing and you can't get your breath and you you know you're you panic a little bit and it, it's it's worrying so i don't think i'm doing this and thinking oh yeah i'm going to be all right it's absolutely fine i don't take this lightly at all i understand everybody's concerns when we look at the uh, alert level um and that can be local and that can be nationwide so we're looking at the r number you know if that's below one then you know that infective rates it's dropping it's going down we look at the, the sort of the pre-treatments that we can do and, and mouthwashes have been talked about. And again, we can we can sort of discuss this on the panel and in the audience in a little bit more detail. And it's, it's a shame because some of the, the papers that have sort of recently come out have kind of shown that some of these mouthwashes are probably not going to be that effective. And there was it was sort of quite interesting that chlorhexidine mouth rinse were, was used, but it's got it's very good at getting rid of the bacterial count. Um, but then not viral, so povidine iodine and hydrogen peroxide were sort of banded around a little bit. But the, the problem is, and these pesky patients, they have saliva um, and it gets washed away. And I think, some, if I remember rightly, the paper that I read said that within 20 or 30 seconds, it's, it's pretty much lost its effectiveness, which is pretty quick. And the patients, you know, they're still breathing. Um, so we've still got the aerosol from the breath. High volume aspiration, we can use that uh, on these procedures where we're using um, something that's going to create an aerosol to help with that. And I've just discussed that and how effective that thing can be. Rubber dam, when you can use it, obviously, if you're doing hygiene, not really that practical, um, but it is effective. The studies have shown that. Ventilating the room, uh, again, pretty much most rooms are do have some type of ventilation. I've put air conditioning in there and, and not recirculating. So Public Health England sort of did modify uh, their document um, not too long ago, saying that air conditioning can be used. And you can, you can understand that circulating the air as long as it's coming sort of externally, uh, however the air conditioning set up. And you can talk to people about this. There are people that are sort of understand about this ventilation you can have chat to and, and air purifiers. So air purifiers have been banded around um, and there isn't a lot of evidence about air purifiers, but it, it kind of makes sense. And I think that, you know, if your patient walks in and they are a little bit worried about it and you kind of go, yeah, we've got an air purifier. I, you know, I can't see a major issue with that if that's something that you, you feel like investing. In. But there's no evidence that SARS-CoV-2 is in aerosols. There just isn't any evidence out there about this. And that doesn't mean that it isn't. I'm just saying that there isn't any evidence. Unless I've missed it, and if I've missed it, please send it to me and I'll be happy. So yeah, I've put universal precautions there because 
was, I was really interested in what was sort of happening to us as sort of dental professionals prior to this. And what we didn't see is we didn't see sort of spikes in influenza. We didn't see sort of spikes in measles or TB or any of these airborne viruses within dental workers. It's just not reported. And it's not being reported now either uh, when we've sort of started to go back to work and some countries didn't stop. And when we look at worldwide, I, I'm going to just talk about that a little bit. When we look at the, the worldwide side of things, one of the, the things that when I, I was talking to somebody that sort of doesn't make the decisions, but help in making the decisions, they said, well, we've got to look at what the rest of the world are doing. And it, it really annoyed me because I thought, well, OK, I understand that you might want to reflect on what they're doing, but it, why can't we be the leaders? Why can't, you know, I'm not talking about experimenting on people, but they've gone back to work and, and you know, not all of them, but some of them, and they're all different in the way that they work. And some of the, the one of the things that I read in the uh, OCDO paper again was that they were basing on what the rest of the world were doing. They're not basing on what the rest of the world were doing. There are Norway and Sweden and oh, God, Finland, I think it is. I looked at what they were up to, and they're using uh, type 2 surgical masks for AGPs, or they were when I looked two days ago. And other countries aren't. And I can understand that, you know, it's why you might not want to. I get that perceived risk. But what I'm trying to say is that potentially these aerosols aren't as bad as you may think they're, they were, or we may think they were. So I want to get this message across and I want to get this message across that we're safe. We're, we're a safe place. And I think that we've got to get that across to the public. Now, I'm not saying don't wear respirators, by the way, and don't wear PPE at all. I'm not saying that in the slightest, but I'm saying we've got to question things. And, you know, this, what we've got to sort of, I think, really do is make sure that they don't stick us with anything that we're uh, going to base it on non-evidence. We've already been stuck with enough non-evidence regulations and it, and it really irritates me. And I think... If you really want my personal view, we've kind of been uh, left like kids and we're looking up to our parents and saying, please tell us what to do. And our parents are sat upstairs drinking their red wine and their gin and tonic. And when we make a noise, they just tell us to shut up. So we don't know what the boundaries are. We don't know what the guard, we want some, we want some serious guidelines and that's what we look for. But I think that what we've got to do is grow up. We've got to grow up and we've got to make that decision. And we've got to understand that we can make that decision because we can look at the evidence and we can say, right, this is what we're going to do. And we're going to base it on this because we are safe. We're no more risk than going down to Tesco's or Waitrose where you, somebody's coughed on the broccoli or picked up the strawberries and picked the nose and then put it back again or B&Q or the hospitals or public transport or hairdressers. I certainly feel safer going to a dental practice than I do going on public transport. Hairdressers, petrol stations, garden centers, beaches, just eat post Amazon. So, what I what I did finally is uh, I went for the the top ten because this is kind of where we are. We're looking at top of the stocks. So I'm not putting this in any particular order, but I'm going to say at number six we've got Portman coming in, and then at number five climbing nicely FGDP, and then number four the uh, European Federation of Periodontology, three BDA coming in nicely on the heels, and then yesterday this morning and how you look at it office and the stand officer but i think at number one you've got to do it yourself look at all this and do it yourself and i'm going to end my presentation there and i'm going to thank you all for listening to me and we'll try and bring other people back in again if they would uh, like to join us kate if you chat away ramble on and right. uh, we'll, we'll try and get uh, all the guys and girls back in again if that's okay right. Yeah, that's great. Thank you, Carl. We've got some questions um, coming through. Um, 
obviously a lot of them are very keen to hear about the PPE aspect. So if we can grab the others back as well, I believe we're going to have uh, Will talking about fit testing. So that will help. We've also got some um, questions um, with following on from your talk with the what mask for what procedure. So I think as a panel, we will um, put that out to everybody. I'll just wait for everybody else to come back in. Hi, Carl, just, just, just interestingly, Carl, <coughs> one of the questions we did have, and I'm just picking up on you saying about you not having a temperature. One of the questions we had sent through was um, uh, about temperatures and just saying, you know, is there any point really? You know, is, is it, are the tests reliable? Are temperature, temperature checks reliable? Yeah, uh, okay. Uh, I will not do what I normally do and give a very succinct no. Um, again, I, I think that, I don't think there's any problem with measuring the temperatures of patients, whether it's reliable or not. I, I think I'm a good example of that, but you can't have me as a, as a you know, something that you base your, your SOPs on one person um because other people do get a temperature it's reported it's reported that lots of people get temperatures um how you measure that temperature what you use what equipment you're using to measure that temperature well again how reliable are the thermometers that are that are being used um so reliability of that i i'm i'm not certain that it's hugely reliable is it is it helpful yeah it probably is i, I don't see a reason not to do it um, but I, I wouldn't be hugely disappointed if it wasn't done. Um, so yeah, that doesn't really give you a definitive answer. And I think when you, if you're looking for definitive answers, then this is where we kind of at. And it's it's frustrating because we can't give huge definitive answers because we're all in this new world and we don't know the answers. But if we can mitigate the potential problems and, and lessen the risks, then I don't see any problem with, with taking temperatures. Thank you. Will, um, we were hoping you could have a chat about uh, fit testing. Yeah, of course. Um, I'm a little bit <coughs> older than Carl, so I'm allowed to be even more cantankerous, um, <laughs> especially like everyone else who's been sitting at home, you know, talking to their patients who, are, who have been in pain and suffering and, um, then also in the way that the profession's been treated over the over the last three months, especially in the last week, um, you know, with the uh, communication that's coming down from above. But again, you know, before before I start ranting, um, I, I think dentistry has always been certainly maybe in the last sort of 10, 15 years a profession where we've been made to jump through hoops. So in some ways, we're actually pretty good at this you know we're, we're sort of very much used to it from when things like uh, CQC uh, was introduced and, and so on and so forth and once you get a hoop there's a sort of knock-on effect isn't there you, you sort of then it leads into another hoop that you have to jump through so so in particular like Carl's saying everything is suddenly revolving around PPE and especially uh, masks and the differences like you say between the level two, level three protection. But of course, that's not the um, the end of the problem, is it? Because what you find is we're all having a, a bun fight now, aren't we, to 
testing it, things like this. Um, and then some people are getting good ones, some are getting bad ones. And the next thing you know, well, you have to get them properly tested. And I guess you are going to be investing that money, uh, taking that time. Somebody get that. Uh, <laughs> you're going to be investing that money and taking that time. And like you say, Carl, we don't know for sure. So let, let's say we have to assume it's worst case scenario and this virus is, is so much more contagious, then you know we want to look after ourselves, our staff, and our patients. Mm. So if we're told to jump through the hoop and it means to do that, you know, we get to carry on working, then that's what we're going to do, isn't it? So uh, I've been lucky enough to actually go on a, a mask fit testing course. So really, you know, I'm no leading world expert. Uh, I, th I think what struck me is now these are testing courses that have probably come from industry first and foremost for, you know, people working on building sites and, and, and with noxious materials, which is now being adapted to the dental profession or the medical profession, because we're the ones who, who want them now. And so first of all, obviously, in goodwill, we all gave our masks away, didn't we, and, and all our PPE. And then at a week's notice, we're told that we need to get it all back again. So go out and buy the inflated prices. So anyway, that's that's by the by. You've got to get you've got to get testing done now, really. I think if you if you want to sort of validate that you are doing the best for yourselves and your staff and your patients. So when you go on one of these um, testing courses, or if you're just being tested, some of the some of the things that you can expect. So obviously you've probably seen pictures of your colleagues with big hoods on, giving the thumbs up while somebody's squirting something at them. So essentially all it is, is it's checking that one, you can put these things on properly, okay, and get a, get a good seal. Once that's on, you're gonna be tested for sensitivity and, and basically what's being used is a, is a, a bitter substance, plutonium benzoate or Bitrex, I think is the, is the trade name for it. And essentially what we're doing is you're gonna be tested by having a little nebulizer with a bit of stuff being poked through into this little hood that you've got on, and it's gonna be squirted at you whilst you are doing a number of exercises. So that will start off with normal breathing, uh, deeper breathing, turning your head side to side, moving your head up and down, talking, there's a little poem that you can get given or you can, you can count backwards from 100, uh, bending over and then back to normal breathing. Now this, this takes about uh, a minute for each one of those and the uh, nebulizer is being squirted in about every 30 seconds. And if your subject can taste or is aware of that bitterness, then hands up and it's a fail. So it's an, it's an all or nothing thing. You're either gonna pass this or you're gonna fail it. And if you fail it, then you know it's back to the beginning. You're supposed to wait um, about 30 minutes or more, wash your mouth out, try and get rid of all the taste, and then you have to go again. So the one thing that I'd say to people from experience is, is try and think about the time factor that's gonna come into this if you're um, testing numbers of staff. There's other practical things as well. Um, Gentlemen, beards are, are very much in fashion now, so um, it's probably better. Yeah, you have a have a good shave, or get a nice a nice goatee, um, and 
so mask fitting for someone like me who, who's got several chins is is not a problem okay uh the masks are you know will fit nice and slugly around my face but you may have ordered one thousand two thousand pounds worth of these things and you know your face compared with your little nurse's face is going to be completely different and what i found was some of the masks were just too big uh for some of the smaller subjects and so that's that can become a problem in itself so it's not just about the quality of these things is does it actually fit your member of staff because if it, if it doesn't then what are you going to do you're going to order another thousand pounds worth of smaller masks you know how are you going to get over it so these are these are little sort of practical things that i think people people need to think about and also in terms of getting hold of um testing kits so i've got a testing kit ordered but you know i don't exactly know when i'm going to get it so it's all very well me having masks and washable gowns and all the other stuff that's uh, annoying my girlfriend by clogging up the house um but you know until i think you've got that mask fitted and everybody's passed it you know you're effectively out of action so that's my experience i don't know if anyone's got any questions on that cheers will i i have actually uh which you may or may not be able to answer probably not so but far away yeah one of the things that um was being chatted about and i think i've actually seen it in the chat as i've looked up and down a little bit with the the kn95 masks that i was talking to having hit ear loops on mm. and, and not tying them have you found that that's an issue um or is it something that you you, you can't actually answer just because you haven't had the experience anybody uh, I, I think lack, I think lack of experience. I think the first thing I noticed, because again, this was new to all of us, was everybody was fumbling around trying to work out whether they put the bottom strap on first and where that sits, and then the top strap, you know, going above your head. So really, I think most of these masks are, are looking at the double straps that that go over the top of the head and hold it in place, as opposed to ear loopy things. Yeah. Thank you. Any any questions that you have for us at all, Kate? Uh, yeah, yeah, I can go straight on to them. Um, one of the questions that has come through uh, is regarding what is the highest risk uh, as a hygienist, if any of you want to take that up. Yeah, okay. Thank you, that'd be, that'd be, uh, <laughs> Hey, I'll, I'll tell you what, it's real quick for me, and I'm not being flippant. Um, it's your travel to work. That's probably your highest risk. <laughs> when you when you when you look at the when you look at the stats, the risk of being in an accident on the way to work and back, uh, assuming you don't live in the same building, I guess, um, is higher than the risk of you getting COVID. Uh, what happens with that? That is slightly different, maybe. And I, I'm, maybe I am being a bit flippant. Um, there are obviously risks and i think that's a really good question and Faye, i'm going to pass over to you to answer that <laughs> thanks <laughs> hi everyone um i personally feel that the highest the highest risk for a hygienist is not having a nurse um, because we know that 90 percent of aerosols 
actually go up the, the wide bore aspirator tip and that's how can you possibly do that and do your work as well. So if it means um, hygienists are routinely able to have the assistance of a dental nurse, then that, that's something really, really positive. Um, I also noticed that someone was asking, do we need to change the wipes? Um, and I think at the moment, no, just, just use what you have in, um, in the surgery um, until we you know, get any more evidence I think things can just carry on really, you know, not to be afraid, keep going. Should, um, if any of you will pick this up, should respirator masks be used for hand scaling? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think that... Um, A good dental nurse. <laughs> it, comes down to, it comes down to mitigating the risks, doesn't it? And I think that it, I, I agree with Faye, um, but it, it is it is an opinion, um, yeah. and it's my opinion, and I, I agree that no, um, because the what we're being told, and it comes back to what we're being told on a lack of evidence, is that there are aerosols being produced, and the nasty aerosols are coming from the ultrasonics, the three-in-one, and the dental hand pieces and that mixture that's that complex aerosol that is generated from that and that's that's the danger area but what they what's being ignored there is the, the the breathing which i talked about as part of the aspect of what's happening when patients walk in they're talking to us they're coughing they're sneezing they're still going to breathe when we're doing hand scaling you can ask them to hold the breath but hand scaling takes a little bit longer than an ultrasonic and and i think that for me it, you know, I've heard that and I've, I've, I've heard and I've read the comments that it is as an effective as an ultrasonic, but you need to be having those conversations with your patients because, yeah, it is ineffective and those studies do show that, you know, it's comparable, but the difference is time. And, and time, I'm afraid, we don't work in a, in a place where time isn't money, time is money. And these practices are, you know, let's let's not beat around the bush. They're businesses, and they've got to survive. So I think that it comes down to maybe a, a changing of the conversations that's had with the patient, and hopefully, as we go through the process, um, and I hope it's in a short time and not too quick, that as the um, levels come down and we go down to sort of level two and level one that there'll be a relaxing on the, the AGPs and, and what they call the fallow time, which leads nicely into sort of fallow time and uh, how long um, we leave it for those nasty little horrible aerosols to exit the room. Um, does anybody want to talk about that and fallow time and why in some of the SOPs it's 60 minutes and why in other SOPs it's, it's down to... Briefly, Carl, yeah. just going back to which type of mask might be suitable for for which procedure i think the problem is sometimes that as a profession we're looking for black and white where there's a lot of gray and so it, you know to, to start off with it may well be you as an individual deciding whether you're at risk from the patient breathing on you or you're at risk from you picking up an ultrasonic or a, a drill or, or what have you so I think if people are looking for answers with that, probably for now, I'd say personally, it's, it's going to be personal choice, isn't it? You know, like some people like to walk down the road 
with a, a full respirator on, you know, and that's that's personal choice because it, you know, it makes them feel better, doesn't it? And it may well be that, you know, your staff um, are going to feel more comfortable, you know, even with a patient having a checkup with a, uh, a level three mask on. So it, it's probably just going to be personal choice for now in the absence of evidence. I yeah. recall. Yeah, I, I, I always love your pragmatic guidance, Will. You always kind of bring me back down to... Uh... <laughs> to again. So you, thank you're you. close to starting a revolution, Carl. So I can do <laughs> um, just try to temper it just a little. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of um, one of the other things that. Uh, sorry, Kate. Did you have a question? I, I do, but you carry on. <laughs> oh no, no, no! You I'll, I'll ramble on forever. No, not you. Um, are <clears throat> reusable FFP3 masks an option? Um, reusable sorry and if so how is it best to disinfect them after an agp session should we should we talk about this uh, anybody want to chip in <laughs> yeah you know what i think it's good, isn't it <laughs> fadi yeah. what's your thoughts i don't um I, again, I don't think there is such a thing as expertise in this. I'm certainly not one if there is, but what we are following is um, what we are planning is to start with the IMOS, hopefully the manual surgery um, service again. And advice we have that, yes, we can use the reusable um, um, I think the ones we have is the stealth one, uh, which um, we'll be using. and. The idea is to wear a surgical mask on top and you can change the surgical masks um, between cases. And I think the filters for those, uh, again, depends on use, what you've been doing and how much um, need to be changed up to a month, I believe. Uh, but Will might have um, a better um, answer for that. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, again, I've covered all bases by ordering both because <laughs> um, I think the, the stealth one said that they could arrive earlier um, whilst we're still waiting for some some more stocks of, of these ones and again I, I see on one of the many whatsapp forums uh, going around was everybody talking how to clean one of the stealth masks uh, and I think to be honest it's going to be like cleaning down any other surface that we have in dentistry you know um, it's going to be as simple as that like you say there's no evidence so we we basically have to throw everything at it you know you'll you'll see a, a lot of um certainly in social media posts about people who are really giving it the whole nine yards in the absence of you know a set of rules so they are having the fogging machine they are leaving it an hour they are putting the virus machines in place and the high suction and and you know dressing up as though they're in ITU uh, just purely probably because people want to start working again and want to start treating our patients Shelley is head nurse uh, in a practice I mean how do you feel about it how confident uh, you and your peers feeling you know what have, what struggles are you coming across um, I think the closer we get to getting back into surgery and the more sort of guidelines that are released, everyone's feeling a bit more, we just want to get back in there now. 
Yeah. It's no good keep sitting at home, reading hours and hours worth of guidelines from here, guidelines from there. We just want a set, a simple set of instructions. This is what you have to do. Um, so we're all just looking forward to get back in in there next yeah. week, hopefully. I mean, there's going to be lots of sort of kinks. And um, one of the biggest things that's come up is in regards to the PPE, having to go into a separate room to don and doff your PPE where is a good place to do that we don't want to be walking you know through the waiting room past reception that's one of the things that's sort of sticking in my mind is is where is a good place to get rid of your ppe without sort of contaminating the rest of the surgery as it were over to you guys it's not the toilet yeah for sure no. um, and the reason for that is because there's evidence um that there is uh, SARS-CoV-2 in, in fecal matter, but whether it's whether it's viable or not, I don't know. Um, so, no to the toilet. It's it's not ideally going to be in the same room. Yeah. But it might have to be because of the way your practice is mm -hmm. set up. Yeah. And I think it all comes down to individually setting out your own SOPs and understanding what you can do within your own practice. And that's the key point. And I think that when we when we all the people that are trying to deliver the sops what we've got to remember is that they've got pretty much the same information that we've all got everybody here everybody that's listening the whole lot and they're doing their best with what they've got yeah. in in most cases they're doing their best in what they've got and they're trying to offer guidance as best as they can see fit and that's not always going to fit to the individual practices, but it's a guidance. And you've got to remember, it's the word guidance. They're, here, they're there to guide, and then you adapt that to your own practice and how that works. So when people are saying, well, how much time shall I leave? Well, what's the ventilation route in like in the room? Is it a room that's downstairs in a basement with no windows and no aircon? Or is it a room that's upstairs with huge windows and, and doors and miles away from anywhere else? And is it you know passive pressure and all this sort of stuff being banded about but there is no real evidence to tell you that it has to be it's not like at 60 minutes all the aerosols have done, suddenly decided to settle yeah they're not they're not going to go right mm. guys that's down, right. Down, we're on the ground yeah it doesn't work like that yeah and, it, and it's not like you know so if we leave some time then what we're doing is we're we're, lo we're lowering that perceived viral load within that room so I think, again, it comes down to having that conversation with your team and, and seeing what you're comfortable with and maybe what, what procedures are being produced. So, I mean, you could get really technical about it, and I don't think you need to, but you could say, well, okay, I've been you know, using the ultrasonic for 20 minutes, and therefore there's a higher amount of aerosol within the air because I didn't have high-volume suction, which you should always be using, looking at what we've just talked about, and therefore I'm going to leave it for a little bit longer. But then how do you manage your patients? So I think you, you, you need to sort of sit down and go through individually at the practice level and decide what you're going to use for your fellow time and i think that probably some people are a little bit scared on what's going to happen if they don't follow certain guidelines that are being told for the fellow time and what what the repercussions are of that and and i understand that there's a, there's a fear of that and they're also probably worried about the fact that that it's infective air and they're worried about what's happening but i hope that i've given some kind of reassurance that it probably isn't but, you know, you can't guarantee that. You can't say for certain, but, you, you know, it's the evidence isn't sort of suggesting that it is. 
that nevertheless we should mitigate and lower the risk. So I'm finding that I'm rambling again, and I do apologize. But sort of the, the, the fallow time is, is arbitrary, and I think it's individual to what you perceive in your practice to be best practice within your own practice and what you should do on your own and, and sort of have that sort of conversation. And, and as, as sort of Will and, and Fadi and Faye pointed out, and have that conversation within the team and see what you're comfortable with, because some of the team might be comfortable wearing a mask and a visor. I didn't mention visors, by the way, but definitely visors. Some of the team might be comfortable in only a respirator. Some of them might want the spider respirators and some not. You, you know, you might want uh, all singing, all dancing. They might want a hazmat suit. Whatever takes their fancy, you know, bring out the gimp. I've got no idea what your team are into, but it could be, um, you know, you might find Ben turns up in a, in a rubber outfit, Shelley. And, uh, Wouldn't be no unusual. Change there, really, no change there. No change. Um, <laughs> just another well, day at the office that's it well there's there's a question that come through that you might be able to shed some light on sure. um someone's heard that some people are refusing to in, indemnify fit testing by dentists on nurses as it's not dentally related will this be an issue yeah to, to be honest this was something that it hadn't even crossed my mind until somebody sent me a text on that um late last night and so all of a sudden it's back to risk averse dentistry isn't it you know we all of a sudden we're we're bad enough in this profession about being sued or not being indemnified as it is um so i, I think that's a really really serious point because as soon as word gets out that you've done um you know mask fit testing and you've got your certificate um you become very popular within the profession and people will give you a call and say oh can you can you do us and yes of course you know i want to do everything i can to to help my colleagues um but now on monday i'm going to have to phone up my indemnifiers and find out what is my position because if i tell somebody ah yes you know you can uh, you can fit your mask appropriately and you've passed this test and they get covid who knows from where it might be from tesco's it might be from in the dental surgery who's to say somebody isn't gonna gonna point the finger at you you know it pains me when i we even have these sorts of conversations you know because but that i guess that's the way dentistry has become and we're constantly looking over our shoulder a little bit aren't we you know um uh, and it's almost it's it's I don't know how far these things have gone, but it's something I'm going to have to look into, and I, and I suspect everyone else will as well. Thank you, Will. Yeah, I agree. There's a, there's a couple of points that I want to sort of chat with, if you don't mind, guys. Um, I'm just going to answer one question um, where someone's been told that they have to have a, a COVID-19 test and submit the results prior to returning to work, um, and then they've mentioned that uh, Lisa thank you it won't be as effective as, as they feel they could contract COVID at any point between the test and their return to practice totally agree with that um, I think you make a very valid point it, it's um, you know we don't know how long the immunity lasts with COVID either you know we don't know whether it's short or long term we don't know the answer to that so I think it's it's a, it's a I can maybe understand why they might ask you but should you be wearing the correct PPE and following some sort of SOP, then what are, what are they worried about? Are they worried about you infecting the patients? Um, 
it's 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 it doesn't work like that does it and and that's a i mean that that is something that the perception that we need to get across is that we are not the infectors they are the infectees and they can infect us and each other and, and it's not often that we infect patients if at all i know that if we go back many years to the states there was a dentist that infected some patients um and in fact um i looked for the study actually uh on this um i'm rambling again i do apologize but there was a dentist that wasn't autoclaving his instruments um he's no longer practicing and so what they did is they they made that when they found out they um took the patients in and they they tested the patients and offered them um free um vaccines for hepatitis but when they tested them there wasn't actually an increase in the hepatitis within the patients and the, none of the patients reported any greater infection i'm not saying you go around and don't sterilize your instruments but what i'm saying is that it, it kind of uh, unfortunately i don't think it was the correct thing to do but what it does do is it kind of backs up the sort of theory that we're not dangerous places to be i don't really advocate not sterilizing your instruments for one moment but it just so happens you can take from that and again it's just some small little thing um it's not a randomized controlled trial by any means but it just adds adds to that bank and i i, I do think you need seriously good studies to have a look at this and one of the things is some of these studies that are coming out that people are sort of pulling in and saying, well, this, this, and this, they're not peer reviewed. They're not great studies. They're really, really, really weak. And we're basing lots of, lots of protocols on this sort of stuff. And the studies are weak. I get that people are scared. I get that they, they're worried about it. And I've gone off at a tangent. Yeah. And there was another question that I wanted to talk about. Um, so uh, if you guys don't mind, I'll come back to it a little bit. And it's about um, putting on your PPE and, and how you do that and what the the correct way to take it put it on is and then again how you take that off and then what you do when you want to go to the toilet or when you want to eat lunch and, and what do we do about that and i think that that is a, a really quite an interesting question because we're going to come across these and our staff are going to cross and we're going to come across this and uh i think that uh fatty if you don't mind um maybe if you could just talk through some of the, the ways that I mean, there are there are videos out there you can download and you can access. Uh, but I think mm. being shown how to, and I'm not asking you to show us, by the way. I'm not expecting you to suddenly. Will you've got some your gain and put your gain on, uh, put a gain on. But if we talk through what we see as a logical <laughs> process, because there is a logical process, there's a systematic way of putting on PPE, and there's a systematic way of taking off PPE. And the reason that we do it in a systematic way is to reduce the fact that we're going to when, certainly when we're doing implant surgery is to reduce the the fact that we're going to contaminate the implant and the surfaces we want to keep everything as sterile as possible so we have a way of putting on our ppe and and this is the new way that we're potentially looking at um and, and that's sort of how we're treating this really is that we're going in and we're putting pp on a certain way but probably more importantly is is what we do when we take it off what do we do with it where do we do it as shelly kind of mentioned and and you know, how do we put it back on again if we put it back on again safely? Sorry, Freddie, over to you. So, yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, using the, the analogy of using the implants, um, uh, sterile procedures, if you like, it's almost the reverse of that. So, you're, you, the, the, the outside of your gans and the gloves are dirty. So, it's, you're almost reversing it. So, you're taking your, you know, there is actually on the guidance, a nice diagrams to show you how you do it step by step, which is 
quite clear. I like it. And in essence, you mustn't touch your front, your sleeves, your gloves, your visor. It's all contaminated or assumed contaminated. So you take your gloves off uh, without touching the outside. Uh, and then you have to clean your hands with alcohol wipe. And then you undo your, your gown very carefully, starting from the back without having to touch the front and so on. And you fold it on itself. Diagrams are explained much better than I am. I'm sure uh, Faye is probably cringing with my explanation. <laughs> um, um, I'm silly for that matter. But in essence, to do that, you also must make sure that your feet, if, if you, you know, you've got to be able to wipe um, whatever you're wearing. Um, and it's got to be discarded um, um, with, with the clinical waste. Don't forget also the clothes that you're wearing underneath. It's got to be, I don't know if you've been this already in your presentation, apologies if you have, but uh, in essence, you need to make sure at the end of the day, those are also laundered in the correct way. Uh, most practices don't have a laundry service, uh, neither do they have a dry um, a dryer, so a lot of people will have to take these home in a safe way and launder them on, a, on their own at home um, in a high, highest temperature they can do at minimal 40 degrees. So all of this comes into it, but it's all laid out there. I just, if, if I can take this opportunity uh, well, to share a little bit of a positive thing there, that's, look, I think we, we will get through this, uh, and, and as evidence comes through over the, over, over the weeks and months, uh, some things might change, our way of doing things might change, um, uh, and, mm. and especially as we look at what other countries have done successfully, like Japan, like South Korea, and so on, you know, we can learn a lot from as the evidence comes through, and I just think we need to have a positive outlook, okay, and uh, the other things that will hopefully come through that could be game changes, when we have that, hopefully, antibody tests, and antigen tests, which are very quick, over, you know, 15, 20 minutes to get results, then that those could be game changers as well, make everybody feel better. So this is a period we have to just grin and bear it and just go uh, with what we in guide, guidelines, as you say, they are guides, and adapt them with common sense to our situation, uh, protecting the team to what best fits us. And if in doubt, do what you think is the safest way. If in doubt, do the safest mm -hmm. yeah. way. Um, there's no funny thing. Whatever you can do with the onion, I've said my piece. Is that does that answer? What We've all lost our confidence a little bit. Yeah, very much. That's all it is, isn't it? Yeah, very much. We need to start somewhere and document yeah. everything. Yeah, I think everything. I think there's from looking at the the questions coming through, it, it's guidance that people are asking for, especially with the um, yes fellow time. Um, between uh, patients, um, there's some concern that some people will be cutting corners, so they're wanting more direct guidance, which is echoing through all of this, really. So, it it, it, it is really tricky because, um, as as I think everyone was saying, it depends on the practice. I mean, some practices have got surgeries in a basement with no windows, no airflow. Um, and so on. So yeah. that was different from somebody who's got massive windows and so on. So um, I think it, it does become very much um, surgery by surgery. And we are thinking potentially, as an example, um, we, we, 
when it comes to doing consults and non-AGP minor oral surgery, i.e. extractions without drilling and water uh, supply, we will be have very minimum time between patients, enough to do the standard cleaning in between places. When it comes to having a surgical, we are hoping to use, now I appreciate not everybody has access to more than one surgery, but if you have that, that could be one potential way. You do your AGP producing uh, procedure in one room, let it settle for an hour, we can do some consults in the other room. Um, I'm using let it settle in a very scientific um, uh, way. And then you go to the other room, do your consults or non-AGP producing um, uh, kind of procedures, and then you can use the other surgery again. That would be one way we are hoping to, to go forward. Otherwise, it is tough. I, I mean, running uh, any any business with having that lower footfall, it's going to be tricky. It means potentially longer days, uh, longer weeks, or you know, maybe having to increase the days you work in as well. Yeah. At the moment, there is no easy answer, which is evidence-based. That's the issue. It's yeah. just yeah. opinions. And including the negative pressure. So what is negative pressure? How, you know, there are ways of looking at that. Uh, but there are so many variables. Um, as an example, through some colleagues who've looked at this, a three-surgery practice with a reception room and a, a maybe 10-meter-long corridor would cost them about £5,000 to have a um, airflow ventilation with filter um, to, to, set, to, to set up. And that would potentially reduce the time between patients. But who's going to tell you what can you reduce it to? It's not based on evidence. It's just that, that's the tricky bit. So we have to do what we think is the safest in our situation. Okay. Thanks, Fadi. Um, yeah. Go on, Kate. Sorry. What's your yeah. um, views on hygiene polishing? Do you think a surgical mask is adequate? I've been looking at these questions and I'm wondering, hmm, what would I do? What would I do? <sighs> it's tricky um, because with polishing before, I would wear a normal surgical mask and a visor. Um, I think during this sort of transition time, I'd perhaps leave it for a while and polish perhaps, you know, review it six months, nine months or so. It's, it's tricky. I can't answer that in a black and white way, I'm afraid. Fair enough. Thank you, Faye. Anybody it, else? It, it, well, it, it, there's a whole load of philosophical questions that are coming out of dentistry now. Mm. We've dealt with what is the fallow time, and the other one is what constitutes an aerosol. Um, you know, so is it is it polishing? Is it anything that produces droplets, perhaps in a surgical? And unfortunately, you, you're going to get a yes and a no, you know, the, the, the more you delve, really. Mm. So I think, again, it goes back to, you know, what that member of staff feels comfortable with. You know, um, is it that just breathing alone is going to be producing some form of aerosol that's going to expose you to a virus? Or is it going to be a combination of breathing plus whatever droplets or profi paste that might be might be flying around? So. Again, it, it's, it's going to go back to what members of staff are going to be comfortable with. I, I think what's useful as well and, and what we're going to do, and I'm sure lots of practices are doing, is perhaps try and get a couple of run-throughs of how your day is going to look from, you know, having somebody turning up 
at the practice just so everybody's comfortable with it so you know because nobody's going to get it right first time around you know everybody's going to want to have their procedure where somebody turns up at the door they're allowed in mask on hands washed sit down then what you do in any given procedure so i think i think a couple of run-throughs for anybody any members of staff who are worried or nervous about that you know it's going to help settle people again thanks will um thank you um can, I'm, can I'm, I just ask yeah go ahead we we're gonna we're sort of getting yeah. close to time um but go ahead Faye. it's okay so someone's asking would i uh, recommend a high volume aspiration when hand scaling yes yes if i ever do any hand scaling a nurse always aspirates for that um and for using um um capitron scaler thank um, you we use suction all the time to make it comfortable for the patient yeah i i, I mean there's there's so much more and we could go on for so much longer and yes. in fact actually yeah. if people are interested uh, there's another webinar on Wednesday. Um, the idea of sort of this was uh, to do a, a little sort of taster um, and it kind of exploded and I just want to thank everybody that contributed to that. Um, I, I really sort of don't mm -hmm. know, I'm, I'm overwhelmed and I really want to thank everybody on the panel for, um, you know, it cost me a lot of money to get them on here, I must admit, but um, you know, I really do. <laughs> it's because the pubs are closed. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Friday nights used to be very different. Yeah. So <laughs> what, uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll send everybody, if they're interested, uh, the link uh, to it. But it's with UCLan. That's uh, up Wednesday with Fadi again. I think you might, you might not be in there. Ian Byrne, um, myself, Sinjin, and we can kind of chat about this and probably a little bit more um i don't know how long that goes on for because we could we could you know carry on talking about this and and the idea of this really was to to try and alleviate a lot of the concerns and and sort of answer as best as we can to the best of our knowledge the questions that yeah and i hope that you've all found it useful i know that i really do appreciate everyone's interest in, mm -hmm. in sort of tuning in and listening um you know when i when i i was maybe expecting 10 uh, when I saw the numbers, I was like, oh, <laughs> uh, so really do uh, appreciate it. Uh, so, you know, thank you, Faddy. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you, thank Faye. You. Thank you, Will. And and thank you, Kate. And thank you, everybody, for, for listening. You don't know um, how much it means. And I, I have to say thank you as well to Kelly. I know she's listening downstairs. And I'm also going to thank my son uh, for not screaming uh, as loudly as he has been um, <laughs> during some of the meetings that I've been having. Um, and and uh, so we appreciate it all. Thank you. Uh, apologies to those uh, questions that we haven't got round to. We've been inundated with questions mm. prior to the webinar, as well as what we're seeing. So you've probably seen that we've Thank been you. touching the computer trying to get them. So apologies for the questions that we didn't get round to. There was one I did see about reusable gowns, who to get them from, where to get them from. Try try care, David. Try try care. And uh, well, thank you from all of us. Have a good weekend, everybody. Yes, thank you, everyone. Take care. Bye. Bye.